We're going to read from God's Word this morning. If you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? Uh, we're going to be reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. That's 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. And this is God's Word. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who, lives has, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. We thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. We are into the sixth and final session of a series that we've been running here at Carn Money called Sure and Certain, which really has been a walk through the book of First John. And today, which comes as no surprise, having just read the scripture, we are going to talk about love. And when you think about it, right, when you think about love, what we're really talking about here is something that runs so totally central to our experience as human beings, doesn't it? I mean, just for a second, okay, think about the huge swathes of film and TV taken up with stories relating to love, or think about songs, or think about books, or think about art. Love sits right at the center of our human experience, doesn't it? And yet there can be nothing more difficult, more time-consuming, more expensive, more painful, more exhausting, more inconvenient than love, can there? Many of you have just spent the last year stuck inside at home with your loved ones in greater proximity than you've probably ever had before with no way out. They're probably sat across the room from you right now and you are very much feeling those feelings about love being an inconvenient thing right? Love. It's a peculiar thing, isn't it? And love in the time of a pandemic might be even harder. 
Maybe particularly for those who have been looking for love in the time of a pandemic. A quick browse of articles written all over the internet uh, relating to finding love in the time of a pandemic throws up numerous instances in columns of people writing things like this when it came to the topic of love. Georgina writes this, Amazon guy, Georgina commented, but he keeps cheating on me by going to other houses. Donna Williams continued the theme. I fell in love with Rick from DPD, who I see at least twice a week. The thing is, though, I'm cheating on Rick with Paul, the Chinese delivery guy, but I only see him in the weekend. Another added, I've kind of grown attached to the Just Eat delivery guy, but I don't know if I'd call it love just yet. Kim concurred. The only guy I've seen on a regular basis is the Uber Eats delivery guy. She wrote, he brings me food and he keeps his distance. It's the perfect relationship, really. Love, right? It's a peculiar, weird thing. And I say this today because the passage that we've just read is really primarily a passage all about love. But even more than that, right? In a sense, this whole letter has been all about love. Everything before this passage, the themes that we've been walking through over the last five weeks, okay, they've all been pointing to this passage and everything that comes afterwards just rounds it all up. First John has been building and building towards this. This is the point. This is the heart of what John wants to say. And you can't really mistake it, can you, right? After all, this passage is laced with love as the major theme. 27 times in just 15 verses, love or some other word for love is used. So it's very clear that John wants this to be our focal point as we read it. But then that should come as no surprise. Because as one commentator wrote of John, all St. John's arguments lead to one conclusion. All his appeals have one intent. Beloved, let us love one another. In other words, throughout John's life, he really only had one message, and this is it. And here we see it as plainly as it's possible to see, that we can be sure and certain because of love. And in a world where love isn't taken as a fixed thing or a sure thing or a certain thing, right? It's dispensable in our world these days. In other words, when somebody doesn't or something doesn't make us happy anymore, then we leave it, we give up on it, we put it to one side. How can love make us sure and certain? Well, today I just want to focus on three things that come from this passage that I think point towards how we can be sure and certain because of love, and it's these It's about identity, abiding, and abandon. Love is about identity, abiding, and abandon. The first of these is identity. This is what it says, okay, in these first verses. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
one of the features of this last year, okay? I'm already in the reflective phase about last year. I've kind of, I, I mean, I know we're not out yet, but I'm kind of already in the point where I'm reflecting back over it, okay? Maybe you are too. And one of the things that I'm reflecting back over is how so many people in the last year have taken up sports of some description. Maybe most probably cycling or running have been the two things. As a cyclist myself, I've never seen so many cyclists on the road, okay? In the UK, in the first lockdown, 1.3 million people bought bikes, okay? And I'll bet that many, many, many more people bought pairs of running trainers, right? And so our roads and our footpaths are full of people exercising. And you might think this is great news. However, one of my favorite things are a series of threads on the internet from experienced runners having a go at lockdown runners, right? There's almost a snobbery. Oh, they're just a lockdown runner out of my way, right? Taking over their roads, clogging up their Strava segments, okay? There's the runners and there's the lockdown runners. But here's the thing. And you can spot it every year in Northern Ireland. It starts around now as we get ready for the Belfast Marathon, which normally happens in May. You can always tell the real runners from the lockdown runners. Maybe it's something about how they run, the stride, the cadence of the way that they run. Maybe it's lots of them and their annoyingly low body fat percentages or how they just look fast, right? Not knackered like the rest of us rubbish runners. Because I can admit, right, as a really rather rubbish runner myself, that lots of us run, but only some of us are runners. It's just in them. It looks easy. It looks natural. And John is getting at exactly the same thing in this passage. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, when we think about God and love, we need to remind ourselves today that love is not something fundamentally that God does or some sort of quality that our God possesses. It's not that at all. When John writes God is love, he's not making a statement about something he does. He's making a statement about the very essence of God's being. It's who he is. There's a difference between loving and being love. And when you think about it, right, when you think about it, it's not that remarkable, really, that God loves, okay? In the end of the day, we do, right? So it's not remarkable that he loves. What is remarkable is how he loves. And God chooses to love right through the incarnation, okay? We spent last week looking at the incarnation, okay? And so you'll know that it's a symptom of what Christianity is all about, that God became a man. But in so doing, it's not just that God became flesh. It's that love became flesh. To paraphrase and adapt that incredible line from Eugene Peterson's translation of John 1, it's that love put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. When we look at Jesus, we're not just looking at how God became flesh and blood. We're looking at how love became flesh and blood. As John writes, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
You know, one of the things I think about often when I read this passage and as I kind of dwelt on it through this last week is if we are to be the Christian community on this earth, right, we need to wear love incarnate as the badge above our door, not just a statement of who we are or who we want to be, but a sign of who our God is. Love put on flesh needs to be above the door, right? God is love. At the heart of our Christian message is that he is love. That's easy to say, and it's very hard to do. As you sit down with people who've maybe had a negative experience of the church fellowship, and they they sit down and they tell you that the badge over the door of their church experience was judgmental or gossipy or shallow or distant or religious. The badge over this door needs to be that God is love not angry, not disinterested, not distant, not uninvolved, not unmoved. God is love, and that's the badge we wear over the door of the church. And it's in Jesus and what we see in him that defines what love is. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And when you think about it, Jesus demonstrates that that love throughout his whole life, okay? From the fact that he was sent to earth in the first place, leaving behind all the incredible beauty and splendor of heaven to be with us here. He left that to be here. And then you think about his words, okay? Words that reframed the law and the prophets. Words that spoke against like every other culture of the world at that time. Words that shook all of the norms. Truly the words of life. They were the words of love. Think of his actions for a second too. Those he healed and restored and how their immediate response so much of the time was how they ran home in worship for what they had just experienced. How the outsider became the insider so often whenever Jesus was performing ministry. And then think of his way, the way of the cross, the way of the resurrection, the way of the spirit that's poured out on us. You see, Jesus defines what love is because God's love meant sending Jesus, his son, his only son. And John stresses that it's his only son, the special nature of who Jesus was to God the Father. That's who he sent to deal with our sin. And as we get ready and get excited about opening up again in Easter, as we get ready on that Good Friday to come before the cross once more, and we stand at the foot of the cross, and we look at the lengths to just how far God has gone for us. You know what? It's impossible not just to sense the power and the possibilities that are within that love. It's the force that's changed the world, and it's the force that could still change the world if only we, the followers of Jesus, would really get on board with it. What is astonishing about this love is that God moved first. We love because he first loved us. This isn't reciprocated. This is all on God's agency. We can be sure and certain because he moved first. And so all we can do is respond. Because whether we've looked for it or not, God loved us first. Over the last number of months, 
Uh, we've probably noticed that our daughter Elle has found lockdown particularly hard. I don't know whether it's been the restriction of it all or the disconnection of it all. She's very much uh, a people person. She's kind of a touchy-feely child and all of that stuff. And, and so the year has been really disconnecting for her as a four-year-old. And we've been navigating how to try and parent her uh, through it and probably getting much of it wrong, right? And there have been loads of tantrums. She kind of explodes a lot of the time about things. And when you're tired and you're stuck in the house with a four-year-old terrorist, right, and they're not doing what you want them to do, the temptation is always to start to try to raise your voice, okay, to kind of, in their madness, to just get madder than them, right, to get up above them. That's the temptation, isn't it? But we've noticed in the last year that when she gets most past it and past herself, the only thing that seems to bring things back around, no matter how bad the behavior is, no matter how great the temptation is to shout or to be that authoritarian dad with her, the only thing that seems to work is to get down on your knee and just to hold your arms out to her. And what happens next is no matter how angry she is, she just seems to fold into your arms, melt, cries, and lets it all out. That's the irresistible power of a love that moves first. Love that holds out its arms to us, no matter where we're at, no matter what we've done, no matter how we're really doing. Love that comes to us whether we deserve it or not. A love like that, all we can do is respond. And that's a love that we can be sure of. We can be sure and certain because of a love that is who God is. It is his identity. And we can be sure of it. But second, we can be sure and certain because of abiding, okay? We can be sure and certain. Got it. Because of abiding, okay? Let's read verses 13 to 18 again. This is what it says, okay? This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In this life, it is a dangerous thing to be sure, isn't it? Generally speaking, you know, I know the topic of this whole series has been to be sure and certain, but when you think about it in this life, it's a dangerous thing to be sure because now we have the internet and anything you quote or say or affirm strongly can be fact-checked within about 35 seconds, okay? And you can be sure that the truth will always find you out. My dad uh, has what I can only describe as a gift, right? To wade into subjects and to speak with the absolute certainty of somebody who knows exactly what he's talking about, except he has no clue about what he's talking about whenever he delivers information about stuff that is not, you know, kind of way off his normal field of certainty, right? But he speaks with all the sureness of somebody who does. And to be sure, can be a dangerous thing. And as we make our way through the Christian life, right, 
we find that at the heart of it is this phrase in verse 13, we live in him and he in us. And you know, it's important in this passage because the same phrase appears again in verse 15 and again in verse 16. And in other translations, you'll see that phrase with the word abide used. And when we think of the word abide, all I can think about is John. Because this is another of John's big themes throughout his life. It is, after all, in John 15, in that incredible passage where he recounts the parable of the true vine and the word abide appears again and again and again throughout that passage. He writes in John 15, 4, this time from the message, I've loved you the way my Father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. And that is the heart of abiding. We can be sure because of a love that abides in us and we in him. But we live in a world that demands the quantifiable, don't we? We live in a fact-based world. There is data for everything, right? Even in the last week, okay, we've had all the stuff about the AstraZeneca vaccination and should you take it, shouldn't you take it? And within like about 24 hours, they generated the data that there were 37 cases of clotting in 17 million. Like data quantifies everything in our world these days, doesn't it? Everything under the shining sun has data. So how can we be sure of a love that abides in us? How on earth can we have any sureness about that? Well, that's what these verses 13 to 16 are all about. They are about, all about trying to quantify what abiding really means, okay? So this is how John kind of spells it out. Verse 13, God abides in us through the Holy Spirit that is given to us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us this is how we know that he abides in us. He has given us his spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we begin to see that our lives begin to produce the characteristics of God's life, holiness, goodness, mercy, love, whatever those things are, okay? The Holy Spirit is one way that we know that he abides in us. Next, God abides in us through the witness of the apostles, verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Our assurance finds its roots in the witness of people like John and Paul and others who did see Jesus. We might not have, but they did. And we stand on their testimony. Next, he says, God abides in us as we personally respond to him. Verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Something happens in us as we outwardly express what God has done inwardly. And then finally, God abides in us as we lean on his love. Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. You know, the NIV translates that word as rely, but it's more literally believed. We have to believe in a love like this. Even as we go through pain and difficulty and the challenges of this life, as we believe in the sort of love that came for us, we find its power deepening in us. We have to believe in a love that abides. And that's because God's love is always looking for and always working towards completeness. God is perfect after all. His love is perfect. That's what this passage says. So why would God settle for anything less for us? Maybe particularly today, as I prepared this week, I felt I was speaking to those who live with some form of imposter syndrome in their faith. 
People who live out their following of Jesus with some, some, some sort of fear that one day you will be found out. If only people knew what was going on behind the scenes. If only people knew what you'd done. If only people knew your past. If only people really knew what you were like on the inside, then they wouldn't think that you were the real thing. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends uh, that you're most afraid of, right? And so life is lived with this kind of fear of being able to be all your Christian faith calls you to be. Here's what John is saying. That abiding means we don't live with the fear of being found out, but instead under the reality that we're being formed. It's not about being found out. It's about how love is making you formed. In that famous parable on the true vine, which talks about abiding, Jesus says to make our home in him as he makes his home in us. And this is the result, verse 8. But if you make yourself at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my Father shows who he is when you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. We live with no fear of being found out, only the reality of how we're being formed. Love, as it works to make us whole, perfect love, leaves no room for fear. God has taken us and our whole lives utterly seriously. The cross shows us how seriously. How can we not do the same with him? Maybe it's time, you know, for some of us today to start to set down the hobby religion and to start to really rely, really believe in his love and it working in us, living in us, working to change us. We can be sure and certain because of God's love. It's God's identity abiding in us. But finally, how it calls us to love with abandon. How it calls us to love with abandon. This is what verse 11 and 12 says. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We had a leadership call Uh, with our central community a couple of weeks ago. And really it was an opportunity for our whole church community to log on to Zoom and to ask us some questions as their leadership team. And one of the questions that we got asked on the night, um, which really kind of moved me and touched me was this question. So you're out somewhere and you overhear people talking about central. What would you love to hear them say, right? What an amazing question. And it got me, okay? And there are all sorts of great answers, right answers to that question. I would want people to say that we're authentic, that we're real. I would want people to say that we're open. I would want people to say that Jesus lives there. I would want people to say that it's a place where they met with God. I would want people to say that we're adventurous, that we're faithful, that we're expectant, right? All of those things feel right. But John would have one answer. If it was John and he was asked that question about my fellowship or about this fellowship here, John would have one answer. And the answer would be that they love one another. It's the characteristic he would long for above all others, that we might love one another. And there's this key in verse 12, okay? It's the key to what he's saying in this sense, okay? When it says, no one has ever seen God 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And I say that today because this verse has real echoes of another time John writes that same phrase in John 1, okay? That passage that we read at the close of Lessons and Carols every year, right? You'll know the passage. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. We get what John is saying in that passage in John 1, don't we? No one has seen God. We don't have any idea what God looks like, who God really is, until we see it revealed in the life of Jesus. And think about the life of Jesus for a moment. How many people knew so much about the great story, about all the stuff that had gone before Jesus' arrival, okay? Before Jesus came. But they never really saw Jesus when he did come. Think about so many people who missed it. He was right there. But then Jesus comes and everything changes. For those who do see him really see what God is up to on the earth. And we see lives changed. And so our lives are changed as we see Jesus, aren't they? In our passage today in verse 12, John is saying the same thing again. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another and God lives in us, then they'll see. N.T. Wright writes this, As Jesus unveiled God before a surprised and unready world, so must we. Love is that important. Love for another, love for one another, is not an added ingredient into our discipleship journey. So often we pull together curriculums, if you like, for what discipleship looks like, reading the Bible and prayer and spiritual disciplines and practices. And we've already done some of those uh, as a church over the last while. So often we run through our discipleship journey as things that we do. John is saying that love is our discipleship. We should be a community of love unlike any other society on this earth. Love must be the hallmark of who we truly are. It was Mother's Day last week. And as our family walked through the challenges of that particular day uh, in this year with a mixture of tears and laughter, we were talking in that day and we were kind of telling stories and laughing at things mom did, the ridiculous, the brilliant, the heart moving, all of the things that, you know, your mom is to you. And we were walking through some of those things uh, as kind of siblings with dad last Sunday. And as we kind of talked about the various things that reminded us of mom and all of that sort of thing, okay, um, I, I like to remind the other siblings in my family, okay, that I was the only one of us kids lucky enough to receive a feature of my mom's, okay? You see, all the other kids in the family, Matthew, Esther, and Hannah, okay, were unlucky enough to receive my dad's rather large nose, okay? All of them, all the other three, okay? And we were, we were spending a great, I mean, I like to remind them, I take great lengths to remind them how big their noses actually are, okay? I, on the other hand, I got my mum's, and I was the only one, and I shall be eternally grateful for it. Here's the thing. Just as I possess a feature that was my mom's, love is the feature that should mark this family. Love 
is the feature that lets others see Jesus. And the only characteristic that will let others see who God really is. You see, John goes on to say that the love of God is made complete by creating in us that same kind of self-giving love as his. In other words, that's the challenge of love, right? That the perfect love of God will only be made complete in us as it replicates the same self-giving radical love for others in us. It is the nearest most people will ever come to seeing the invisible God whenever they see the love of God working in our lives, through our lives, towards other people. As we live through one global pandemic, the Christian church has lived through plagues in the past, okay? In AD 314, Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea in uh, Palestine. Famine and war had recently afflicted the city of Caesarea. So when the plague hit in the early 4th century, the people were already weakened and they were unable to withstand this additional blow. The population began to flee for safety. They got out of the city to the countryside. However, in the midst of all the fleeing, right, of inhabitants, one group and only one group stayed behind. And that was the Christians. As bishop of the city and a historian of the early church, Eusebius is recorded in writing the church history that during that plague, this is what he writes, all day long, some of them, that's the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and they distributed bread to them all. Eusebius goes on to state that because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, the Christian, and I quote, deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. How they loved changed the world. And just a few decades later, the Romans would acknowledge it as such as the Roman Empire itself was turned upside down by the Christian story. It was love that did it. We're in a pandemic. Maybe we are coming to a point where we see light at the end of the tunnel and we see the world opening up again. And I guess the question is today, how will our love for one another show other people who Jesus is? Because John's saying that it's not our activity, it's our love for one another. And I have to ask that as our world begins to open up in the months ahead, maybe we should be thinking less about all the things we want to do and thinking more about who we'll be and how we'll love one another and the community around us through the challenges that come now and come next. Maybe it's less about all the things we're planning and maybe it's more about who we need to be. Love is greater than cynicism. It's greater than the walls we put up. It's greater than our differences, our history, our fears. One commentator writes, we are God's audiovisual presentation to a dying culture. The question is today, how will we love one another? How will we do it? In his book, uh, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard writes that life change is only brought by three elements, vision, intention, and means. We have the vision. 
God's love is the vision. The life of Jesus is the vision. The self-sacrificial love of the cross is the vision. I don't need to keep repeating the vision. We know what the vision of love is. And we have the means. It's easy to demonstrate love to other people. It could be as simple as forgiveness. It could be as simple as small things brought to people. It could be all manner of things. We have the means to demonstrate our love to one another. The question is today, do we have the intention? It reminds me of the words of the great pastor Eugene Peterson. Uh, He wrote an incredible book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And in that book, Peterson, who is one of the most incredible pastoral writers of our time, if you've read any of his, you cannot help uh, but understand his love for other people, okay? Peterson writes this, every day I put love on the line. There is nothing I am less good at than love. I am far better in competition than in love. I am far better at responding to my instincts and ambitions to get ahead and make my mark than I am at figuring out how to love another. I am schooled and trained in acquisitive skills in getting my own way, and yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, daring to believe that feeling in love is better than succeeding in pride. Here's the question today. Though we can be sure and certain of a love like this, do we have any intention of making it complete in our lives by it being demonstrated in how we love one another? We can be sure and certain because of love. A love with an identity. It's who God is And we see it in the life of Jesus. We can be sure and certain because of a love that abides, that lives in us as we live in it, and it works to see us changed. A love like that casts out fear in our lives, and a love that calls us to abandon. We're loving one another is the way that this world sees Jesus. Just as we finish up today and ask Shane and the guys to to come and maybe just to start to play a little bit. I really recognized as I was kind of coming through this passage this week just how countercultural love is in our world. It strikes me that so much of this is so very easy to say and so very hard to do. As Peterson himself says, there is nothing I am less good at than love. I can absolutely resonate with that statement. And how countercultural these three things are, right? To love, right? It's something in our world we find, we make, we lose, we tough out, right? And yet we find it's who God is. It's not something we do. It's something that God is. Abiding, okay? In a world of doing, John says that this is a way to be. And then abandon in a world that revolves around self, John calls us to each other. A perfect Love is made complete in us when it replicates itself in us. And just as we finish today, I want to pray for us. I want to pray that God might stir in this place as we get ready to come back together again. He might stir in us that we might be a community of radical love, that love might be the thing that marks us out, 
not our activity, not the courses, not the hundreds of things that we could start up and do, but rather the people that we might be. That we might be stirred toward one another. Some of us have spent the last year at home. We have barely seen another living soul. We will need to relearn how to be with one another. And that starts with love for one another. But maybe particularly today, just have this sense that at home now where you sit, God wants to stir up the gift of tears for some of you. That you already have deep, deep feeling for other people. That you are that person that walks past people in the street identifying needs and that it stirs you to tears. That you see needs in our world and it stirs you to tears. And I want to ask that God would really stir that amongst this church community today. That there may be more people in this church who are moved to tears by the needs of your families, by the needs of your friends, the needs of your workplaces, the needs of the streets and small communities you live in, by the needs of this nation and by the needs of the nations. That this might be a community full of people with the gift of tears. That those are tears of love to a dying world. So wherever you are right now, if that's you, maybe it's already started. Maybe you have spent some of this sermon today with tears in your eyes. I don't know, but wherever you are this morning, why don't you hold your hands out? If you know it's you, why don't you hold your hands out? And I was going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come. I'm going to pray for him to minister to you. I'm going to ask him to stir in you whatever it is he's doing. And then I'm going to ask him to stir in us as a wider church community. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. And God, we look to you. We look to you, the picture, Lord, the vision the definition of what love is. That self-sacrificial love, self-giving love, love that emptied itself for us. God, we look to you and we say we want to be like you today. And above all gifts, above all activity, God, we want love to be the marker of our lives. We want love to be the thing that defines us. We want love to be the thing that stirs us to want for a world shaped by who you are, shaped by that perfect love that casts out fear. God, would you stir in us today as a church community that we might be a community of radical love, that as we think about a world opening up, we're not thinking about all the things we want to do. We might be thinking today about who you are calling us to be, that how we might love one another might truly demonstrate to the watching world who you are, that as they see our love, they might meet you. God, I want to pray this morning for people with the gift of tears. God, I want to ask that you might multiply it today, Lord. Might you affirm in those people that there is nothing wrong, but rather, God, you are breaking their heart for what breaks yours. Jesus, stir them today. Affirm them today. Build them up today. Draw close to them today. 
Let them know that as they weep, they are weeping for something that is on their, on your heart. Weeping for someone that is on your heart. Draw close to them today. Stir in us, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name.